Bible, you can go ahead and open it up if you've got one on your phone. You're going to want one today because what we're going to do is we're going to walk our way through the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. And uh, we're going to see numerous just declared truths. That's what we're going to see. No commands this morning. Uh, It's an interesting passage of Scripture in that it's a 12-verse chunk that literally just tells you who you are and who God is and what that means. And so these are wonderful, wonderful truths. I want to start this morning by just giving you a little bit of context and overview of the book of 1 Peter. It's written by Simon Peter, the disciple. He's the Peter that was called by Jesus in Luke chapter 5 while he was literally fishing in his boat. He's the same Peter uh, that was on the mountain with John and James when Jesus was transfigured, the same Peter that walked a few steps on the water before he started to sink, the same Peter that denied Jesus three times in the garden, the same Peter that gave uh, the sermon there at Pentecost and thousands of people came to place their faith in the Lord. It's that Peter who wrote the book of First Peter. And the reason he wrote was to encourage a group of believers, a group of believers who lived in uh, some Roman provinces. You see them listed there in uh, the back half of verse 1. It says that the letter is addressed to those who are in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are Roman provinces just south of the Black Sea. It's actually modern-day Turkey. And what this letter was supposed to be was a circulatory letter that was going to be delivered or carried by uh, a guy named Silas. And he was going to go to the churches in each of these areas where they could copy down the letter, and then he would move on, kind of a circular fashion, uh, until returning to where he was with Peter. And so the letter was written to these individuals as a source of encouragement. That's Peter's goal. What these Christians are experiencing is a bit of persecution. Now, when we talk about persecution in this era among Christians, we think of widespread, kind of systematic, government-run persecution of Christians. That did take place over a period of time. It's just not this particular time that Peter is writing. What the believers that he's writing to are experiencing is more of a local-level kind of persecution that basically stems from the fact that They are an extreme, extreme minority. That to identify as a Christian placed you outside the norm of everyone else in society. And so because they did so, they experienced uh, a level of persecution due to the fact that people just didn't understand who they were or what they were doing or what this Jesus thing was all about. And so they're undergoing kind of everyday smaller scale kind of persecution and suffering because they identify as believers in Christ. And Peter writes to them in order to encourage them in the midst of that. He encourages them with some of the following. That suffering and persecution are a reality, but they have a purpose. He encourages them that their hardship ought to lead them to deeper levels of holiness. He encourages them with the fact that the gospel makes their suffering bearable. More importantly, he encourages them that the future promises of the gospel make their present sufferings bearable. Ultimately, Peter's encouragement is that in the same way that the gospel is unchanging, unbreakable, unshakable, so too can the faith of a Christian be in the face of even the most difficult circumstances. And so what the first 12 verses of 1 Peter do are lay out the foundational truths that kind of hold up all of these encouragements. 
what Peter does is he walks through basically one really long run-on sentence from verses 3 through 12 that is just densely packed with all sorts of factual statements about who a Christian is. He doesn't give any commands. These are all declarations. And what the point is, is that everything that Peter is going to write following this stands on these truths. That as he moves forward and he talks about things like submitting to your governmental authority, or he writes about suffering, or he writes about being holy, all of that is held up by what is stated here in the first 12 verses of 1 Peter. And so we're going to walk our way through these. As I was putting this together, I was reminded of a video that went viral a few years ago of a little uh, blonde girl with curly hair standing on the counter in her bathroom giving herself like a morning pep talk. The video was called Jessica's Daily Affirmations. It was like 45 seconds long of her just looking at herself in the mirror and pumping herself up or herself up with the truth of just who she is and what she loves. And so here is that video. Look, I can be a shark. Now my whole house is great. I can do anything good. I like my school. I like anything. I like my dad. I like my cousins. I like my aunts. I like my Allisons. I like my mom. I like my sisters. I like my dad. I like my hair. I like my haircuts. I like my pajamas. I like my stuff. I like my rooms. I like my home. My whole house is great. I can do anything good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I can do anything good, better than anyone, better than anyone. She can do anything good better than anyone. And knowing that truth, she just runs out of the bathroom ready to take on the day. That's kind of how Peter starts his letter. Hey, If you knew these truths, if you just remembered these truths, you could run out into the world, into whatever circumstances you might be facing, and face them confidently. Not because you are something special or talented or you can do anything good, but because you stand upon a gospel that cannot be damaged. And so I'm going to give you this morning a standard 16-point sermon. Here's actually what I'm going to do. There really are 16 of these. But I'm going to briefly run through some of the truths that Peter lays out here in his first 12 verses. The reason being is that as we walk our way through this series, we're going to refer back to these constantly. The things that Peter encourages us to do or commands us to do or says that as believers we should be doing, he commands because of the truth that's in the first 12 verses of this letter. And so I just want us to see these. You can get them written down if you're a note taker and kind of leave them in your Bible. As we go through the series, we're going to refer back to these quite a bit. And so they fall into four general categories as we work our way through uh, the text. The first few come from verses 1 and 2. So here's what 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2 says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This whole first section falls under the category of you're not home. And that's actually the first truth. 
This is not your home. Earth is not your home. Peter calls his readers elect exiles of the dispersion. Your version may say something to the tune of sojourners or aliens. This isn't your home, Peter says. Just like at one time the Jews were sent out of their homeland, they were dispersed, the dispersion, so too, as believers, you are not in your homeland. Your home is in heaven. That's where your permanent residence resides, and ultimately, you are going to go there. But until then, you're just passing through right now. If you went away to college and you spent, you know, four, five, maybe six years living on a college campus, maybe in a dorm or in a house or a duplex, whatever the case might be, that's probably the closest thing I can think of as to what does it mean to be an elect exile that Peter is describing. You spend some time living in a place that was kind of home, but then on the weekends or holidays you went home and you had these two places where you lived and then in the future there was going to be some other place that you called home and college was just like a holdover. That's what... That's what Peter's describing. This is not your permanent residence. This place where you live right now, despite all that we should be doing to influence that for good and to bring people to know the gospel and to see gospel realities and kingdom realities play out in our lives, we should, we should spend our time doing that with the understanding that ultimately this is not our home. Our home is in heaven. That's the first truth. This is not your home. The second is this, God knows you and your circumstances. He says to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he lists those different regions, and he says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. When Peter uses that word here, he's talking about a very personal thing. He's saying that God knows you and your place in life personally and intimately, and he has known that since before time began. That's part of God the Father's fatherly love for all of his children. You are known fully. Who you are, where you are, what you're going through, what you will go through, all the days of your life. There is not a thing that happens to you where God looks down and says, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Now we need to adjust for that. That doesn't happen. You are fully known. You're fully known right here, wherever you live, kind of in North Kansas City. You are known in that place. And whatever you're going through in that place, God knows about and has known about, which also means that God has a plan for it. And that's the next one. That all of our circumstances exist for a purpose. And that purpose is for our sanctification. You're an elect exile, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can trust and rely on the fact that everything that happens in your life happens for a purpose. And that purpose is for your sanctification and the Lord's glory. Whatever you may be going through, be it good or bad, in the place that God knows and has always known, you are going through that thing for the sake of your sanctification. God wants to use your circumstances to make you look more like Christ. He wants to use your circumstances to make you more holy. 
And that's what sanctification is all about. It's actually the next phrase in this statement. It's the next truth. That the goal of your sanctification is increased obedience to Jesus. That's all sanctification is. It's a kind of a long, churchy word, but it's just growing in your holiness, looking more like Jesus, obeying Him to a deeper and deeper degree. And that should be a trajectory that takes place throughout the entirety of your life thanks to all of your circumstances. That God has always known them, that He wants to use them for your sanctification, that you would be more obedient to Jesus. And then the last part of this phrase and for the sprinkling with his blood. There's a provision for when you fail to obey. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have placed your faith in him, then at that moment, we all understand that all of our past sin was forgiven. We were wiped clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. But in that moment, all of your future sin was forgiven as well. And so as a follower of Christ, when we fall short and fail to obey, and when our you know, road of sanctification doesn't look like a straight line, but looks more like a roller coaster or something that hopefully is gen- generally trending upward, when we have moments of disobedience, we've been covered by the blood of Christ. You're made clean by the blood of Christ. There's provision for your failure to obey. Those are great truths. This isn't your home, but you're here for a purpose, and that purpose is your sanctification. And that means that you're going to be more and more and more obedient to Jesus, but when you miss the mark on that, it's okay. It's been covered by the blood of Christ. There's a lot of good stuff there. All falls under the heading of this is not your home. The next section we're going to look at are verses 3 through 5. Peter said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. All of these fall under the category of there is hope. This isn't your home, but there is hope. The first truth here is that God is to be praised for his great mercy. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. It's his mercy that made salvation possible. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. If you've placed your faith in Christ, then thanks to the work of Jesus on the cross, you aren't going to receive the just punishment that your sin deserves. And that's because Jesus has taken it for you. Amen? Amen. God is absolutely to be praised for his mercy in saving us. And then in case you need more reasons to rejoice in the Lord and in his great mercy, Peter spells out a few more. The next one is this, that you have been born again, entirely new, not just like an upgraded version of yourself. I think sometimes we feel like when when we place or a person places their faith in Christ, they just get some sort of system upgrade and they become a better version of the person that they were before. That's not true. Scripture tells us that when we place our faith in Christ and the Holy Spirit comes into our life, we are made entirely new. The old, gone. The new has come. That is worth praising the Lord for. Whatever you had as a part of your life, whatever defined you and marked you in the past, when you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are now defined and marked 
by the blood of Jesus Christ and you are entirely new, which means you don't carry the shame of those things. You don't carry the guilt of those things. The reality of the circumstances that may exist in your life because of them could carry over, but you walk through those as a new person completely made new thanks to your faith in Jesus Christ. You have been born again. Peter David says it this way, the spirit does not just clean up an old life, but introduces the person to a whole new life, making him or her holy. That's worth rejoicing in. I don't know every person's individual circumstances in this room, but I can guarantee that you think about your life before Jesus and you think to yourself, praise the Lord, I'm new that that does not mark me and define me any longer, but instead I'm marked and defined by Jesus. The next truth is this. Your hope is living. Your hope is living. Blessed be God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It's living because it rests in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, holy, righteous individual, crucified, buried, resurrected, and is now living and reigning and interceding on your behalf at the right hand of the Father. Amen? He is not dead, which means your hope is living. It's living. That's important. It's really important given what Peter is going to say here in just a couple of verses. But know that God is to be praised because of his mercy. Because you've been born again. And because your hope rests in a living and a reigning Savior who's coming again. And he's going to take you to an indestructible inheritance. That's the next one. You've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Your inheritance is indestructible. Peter makes kind of a, uh, an allusion to the Jewish people there, kind of like he did when he talked about the dispersion up in verse 1. What he's alluding to is the fact that the Jewish people were promised a land, an inheritance, that by being God's chosen people, they were going to get to go and to dwell and to live in this particular land, except for that land was not permanent. It was absolutely destructible. It got taken away from them at the exile. But Peter says, your inheritance, praise be to the Lord, is indestructible. It's imperishable. It means it cannot dwindle or suffer, suffer decay or be worn down by time. It's undefiled, which means it's holy and perfect. It can't be tainted by sin. There's nothing in that place, heaven, that could possibly be unworthy of God's full pleasure. It's unfading in that it's going to endure forever and never lose its beauty or glory. And it's kept for you guarded and protected by God. That's worth rejoicing in. That there's a living hope in an indestructible inheritance. VP Furnish, when writing about this opening section of 1 Peter, he's a commentator, he said this, our existence receives its definition and direction from the future, not from the present, from God not from the world. Our existence is defined by the fact that we're headed to an indestructible, perfect inheritance. Our existence is defined by the fact that this is not home, that there's hope in something better, 
that there's hope in a permanent existence and a permanent inheritance that's undefiled by sin. Because here's the whole next section, verses 6 through 9. They are all about suffering. This isn't your home. There's hope for something better, but at the same time, there is suffering. John Stott says, Sufferings now, glories later. Here's what verses 6 through 9 say. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. There are some truths here. As believers, we continually rejoice in our living hope and our indestructible inheritance. We can't help it. It's who we are. The this, in this you rejoice, refers to everything we just talked about in verses 3 through 5. And that word rejoice is a continual thing. It's not like a momentary happiness or something that just overcomes you in little waves and you think about heaven and you think, oh yeah, that's really great. Rejoice. No, it's a continual, deep, abiding anticipation of the reality of the inheritance that you have waiting for you and the hope that comes through that. You continually rejoice. You can't help it. Thanks to faith in Jesus and what he has guaranteed for you, rejoicing is just who we are as Christians. It's a fact. It's a reality. Think about the last time you drove through a long tunnel. And particularly, I'm thinking of uh, when you pass into the mountains in, in Colorado. Uh, there are often these long tunnels cut directly through a mountain. And they can last for uh, miles at times. And there's always, once you arrive at a certain point in that tunnel, there's the end of it. And you can see the light coming in. There is suffering. There will be dark times, Peter says. But there is light at the end of that tunnel. And if you would just focus on the light instead of the darkness of the tunnel, if you would focus on the hope at the end instead of the suffering in the midst, life would be a whole lot better. And as Christians, he says that's what we do. We focus on the end. We focus on the reality of our indestructible inheritance. The next truth is this. Suffering is temporary. It's temporary. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Suffering may come your way. And even when it does, it's temporary. Now I don't mean, and the Bible doesn't mean, temporary in terms of here. Your suffering may last a short season. Your grief or trial may last a few years. It could last a decade. The reality is that it could last the entirety of your life. Peter says, that's temporary. It's temporary because of the hope of the future inheritance that we have. The difficulty of our suffering is brief, but it shines dimly compared to the glory of our eternal future. We also know that our suffering has a purpose. There is suffering, and it has earthly purpose. And that purpose, Peter describes uh, as being similar to the refining of gold. That though tested by fire, your faith is refined. God wants to use your suffering. He wants to use your trials. For what? Well, that goes back to the very first chunk, for your sanctification. So that you become more like Him. 
He will not waste the difficult points in your life. And ultimately, the purpose of our suffering and grief from a 30,000-foot view, I'm not talking about the challenge that it presents in the midst of it, but from God's perspective, the suffering and grief we experience is there to mold us more and more into the image of Jesus. Our suffering has an earthly purpose. It also has an eternal purpose. And that's that at the final judgment, God is going to declare the genuineness of each person's faith. And those who have proven faithful are going to share in the glory and honor and praise that is due to Christ. I can't even wrap my head around that reality. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the well done, good and faithful servant moment. That if your faith proves genuine there in that moment, God is going to delight in allowing you to share in the glory and honor and praise that are due to a sinless and righteous Savior. That moment's coming if you've placed your faith in Jesus. And that's the last truth of this section, that the completion of your salvation is coming. Peter says, you don't see it now, you haven't seen it, but he's coming back, which is quite a statement from Peter because he has seen Jesus in the flesh. And he said, look, in the same way that I saw Jesus face to face, I saw him crucified, I saw the empty tomb, I saw him resurrected, you place your faith in something you haven't seen, but that's just as powerful And he is coming back again, and that is going to complete your salvation. You are going to be swept up into glory in that moment. Resurrected body, no more sin, no more suffering, no more decay, eternal hope that's indestructible. That day is coming for you, he says. That should put some things in perspective. That's what Peter's doing. He's giving us reminders that put some things into perspective. And he rounds off the section with these Three verses. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and his subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. We presently partake in the privileges the prophets predicted. It's a lot of peas. Drew Matthews would be very proud of me. He was a master at that. We presently partake in the privilege the prophets predicted. Empowered by the Spirit, the Old Testament prophets spoke of a Messiah that was to come, that was going to save them. They didn't know when it was going to happen. They hoped it was during their lifetime, that they would live long enough to see that happen. But the reality is that none of them did. And the Old Testament holds their prophecy of those things. We, a couple thousand years later, or these Christians, uh, just a handful of years later, are partaking in the privilege that those prophets predicted for them. Everything that the prophets have to say, everything the Old Testament has to say about a Messiah that's coming to save We're looking back on and saying, I place my faith in that. I'm taking part in that. Praise the Lord. Then he goes one step further and says that we partake in the privileges the angels long to look into. That's the last phrase. 
There's a mystery that uh, we could spend hours on and theologians have spent decades on trying to unpack just a little bit. But basically, the thing that's agreed upon is that angels, a different kind of created being, they're created, sinless, see that the work that the Lord has done on behalf of humanity and just marvel at it. A good and gracious God saved these people through his son, Jesus Christ. And they long to look into it. We partake in that privilege. Our Savior has come. That's the last section of those truths. This is not your home. And because it's not your home, there's hope. But even in the midst of the hope, suffering is going to come. But it's okay because your Savior has come and He's coming back and He is taking you with Him to a place where none of this is going to exist. And with that, we can jump off the counter and go running into our circumstances saying, I can do anything good, better than anyone else. Because we stand on a gospel that is indestructible. Here's where I want to end. What we're going to do over the next couple of months as we work our way through 1 Peter is that we're going to come back to these. Because as Peter commands Christians to do certain things, he's standing on these truths. If we woke up every morning and just reminded ourselves of the four broad categories, it would absolutely change the way we interact with the world. If we just woke up in the morning and reminded ourselves, okay, self, this isn't my home. And there's hope and an indestructible inheritance that's waiting for me thanks to faith in Jesus Christ. And even though suffering or challenge or grief might come, it's okay because my Savior has come and He's coming again. If we reminded ourselves of those truths every morning, it would drastically change the way we approach the things we face in life. In fact, that's Peter's hope. That those truths would drastically change the way the recipients of his letter interact with life. And so that's what we're going to see as we continue to walk forward in this series. How do these truths impact the way I walk through my daily existence? Sound good? 16 truths. You just memorize those. And uh, I won't give any sermons for the rest of the series. How's that? Let's pray and then we'll go from here. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you that this is not our home because when we look around and we see some of the stuff that goes on, it breaks our hearts. It confuses us and it challenges us. We struggle with it, Lord. But the truth of the matter is for every person in this room who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, this isn't home. And it's not home because there's hope and a future inheritance. You have secured it for us, Lord. We can bank on it. We can trust in it. We can look forward to it, even though suffering and challenge is a reality in life. God, thank you that those things are temporary and that they have a purpose. Thank you that our Savior has come and He is coming again, that He is living. Our hope is in a living and a risen Savior, Lord. Would you press those realities into our hearts, allow our identity as a Christian founded upon the truth of who Jesus is and our faith in Him, influence the way we live our daily lives, Lord. Over the course of the next few weeks, as we walk our way through First Peter, Lord, would you just open and expand our hearts and our eyes and our minds to these realities. Give our hearts comfort in the truth of who you are, what Jesus has done, and what that means for who we are. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.